I don't know about you, but I've never been a world champion at anything, unless you count that one PC World Overwatch tournament in 2018. Yes, truly, it is an achievement that very few people on the planet will ever experience. Getting a shiny belt and finally being able to sit down and relax, knowing you've actually reached the end of your journey. But life often finds a way to make even the best of times often quickly take a turn for the worst. Today, we are looking at champions across various MMA promotions who no sooner had they won their world title were immediately faced with the reality of losing their belt to the next unassailable contender or vengeful former champion. I'm Balian from MMA On Point and these are 10 champions destined to fail. Number 10, Jose Aldo, the second time. So after Conor McGregor came along and basically Alejandro Sozid Scarface, the world wasn't his anymore, and neither was the title. And it was actually pretty unclear what was gonna happen next, perhaps an immediate rematch for the King of Rio. I mean, if anyone earned it, that guy did. His first title reign was, and still is, legendary. But good luck trying to make Conor McGregor do anything you want. What happened instead is Aldo fought Frankie Edgar at UFC 200 for an interim belt until they figured things out. After getting the job done and after Conor was stripped of the belt entirely while he moved up to lightweight, Aldo was once again the champion, but sadly this time around it would be incredibly short-lived. If Conor McGregor's 13-second KO proved anything, it was that the next generation of featherweights were here, and as long as Jose's legacy was and as high as his power level had previously gotten, taking on these new challengers was a completely different set of Dragon Balls. The Blessed Express in the form of Max Holloway had steamed into town carrying an interim belt, a 10-fight win streak, and an unstoppable desire to be crowned the actual champion. Aldo got two chances to secure the title he'd only just reclaimed, but alas, the blessed era had begun. He even eventually lost to the current champion Volkanovski, which kind of proved that after Conor, the odds for Aldo's second go-round as UFC champ to succeed were heavily stacked against him. Number 9. Julia Budd So we can all thank the UFC and Dana White for bringing women's MMA into the mainstream, can't we? But I have to apologise. Before that, it was Scott Coker and Strikeforce who had the likes of Gina Carano, Misha Tate and Chris Justino Cyborg who took the crown of most prolific female fighter on the planet from Gina and started terminating everyone else who dared weigh in at 145 pounds. Not just in the UFC. I mean, they didn't actually have a 145 pound division for a while. And when they did, it was incredibly thin even now. And Cyborg's time spent there was pretty short lived. After just three years, she was already looking for somewhere else to charge her power cells. And it just so happened that old friend Scott Coker was now the president of Bellator, and would you believe it, they had a women's featherweight division as well. Who was the champion at the time though? Well, it was Julia Budd, and she'd held the belt for two years and also randomly had every championship fight in Thackerville, Oklahoma. Either way, it didn't matter. As soon as Cyborg put metal hand to paper and signed a new Bellator contract, Julia's countdown to Judgment Day had begun. The odds opened with her as a minus 450 favourite and as high as a minus 600 for the fight not to go to decision. Some media outlets even suggested that Julia had just been keeping the belt warm for her this entire time. She survived until the fourth round, but if you're a women's featherweight somewhere on the planet, you know the TX is coming for that ass. Number 8, Eddie Alvarez. Okay, I want to start this entry by pointing out that every promotion Eddie has fought under that had a world title to collect, he's managed to get his hands on it. Technically, he has parted ways with one championship, so I guess he broke his own tradition there. But when he arrived in the UFC, hot off the Bellator grill, chances were he was going to get a UFC belt, or at least fight for one. He lost his debut to Cowboy Cerrone, but then beat three MMA champions in Melendez, Pettis, and finally the champ Dos Anjos. And he made good on his promise and also proved a ton of people wrong who said he was never good enough to even be in the UFC. But the thing is, 
years, now he was a champion. Lined up behind him was now a historic killer's row of lightweights. Not trying to knock the legacy of Eddie, but we saw what happened when he went up against Connor. And if it hadn't have been him, Khabib was next, and he kind of proved there was no one at his level in the lightweight division. After Khabib won the title, the next guy to hold on to it was Dustin Poirier. And yeah, guess what? We actually saw what happened when he fought Eddie, and he managed to beat him. Eddie did everything he said he would and managed to win the UFC title, but we saw any of the next three guys in line would have been able to take it from him. Number seven, Brent Primus. So by now, the MMA fan base at large is more than familiar with Michael Chandler, the Iron Man who can put you out faster than he could charm you into hiring him for whatever business it is you own. Seriously, Mike strikes me as a guy who's never been turned down at any job interview. Hey, have you seen the Zeus ring by Groove Life? The Groove Belt. For me, the So Right, these are products that I have implemented into my game. Yes. And it's the choice of a new generation. After Will Brooks left for the UFC, the Bellator lightweight division was run by Iron Mike, and he secured his place on top of it when he straight stone-cold Patricky Pitbull and claimed the vacant strap. It didn't look like he would be letting it go anytime soon. In fact, there weren't really many contenders left in the division to take on, apart from Brent Primus. Now, Brent was just 7-0 at this point, so he didn't have a lot of experience. He got three first-round finishes when he arrived in Bellator, but then narrowly split-decisioned his next two opponents. But it was enough to get a title shot against Chandler. But a lot of people didn't think he was on the same level as Mike, who at one point was as high as a minus 800 favorite. But something crazy happened. After several leg kicks, Mike experienced foot drop, essentially a nerve injury to his ankle, and he wasn't able to continue. Strange way to win the belt, and almost everyone saw it as a fluke victory, one that wouldn't be replicated. Mike then removed even more doubt and beat two more contenders at lightweight while Brent sat out injured until the rematch could be booked. This time, Mike almost finished him in the first round, and there were some close submission attempts, but it was domination from the man most seen as champion even without the belt. Number six, Juliana Pena. Right, so who's the greatest women fighter of all time? I uh, said Shevchenko? All right, I'll take it. But she was beaten twice by Amanda Nunes, who also ended the run of Chris Cyborg, became the first double champ, and has beaten every single UFC champion that's existed in her weight class. It's kind of hard to argue with that. But Juliana Pena had been asking for a title shot pretty much since winning the Ultimate Fighter. When she finally got it, she took it to the Lioness and shook up the world when she finished her. Some people called it a fluke, but the fight kind of spoke for itself. But after the dust had settled, it seemed all had not been well in Amanda's camp in the build-up. I have to get 100%. And if she beat me 100%, okay. But my last fight, I wasn't, so. I mean, you could argue she's making excuses, but Amanda has never really given us any reason to believe that. Only one way to find out was to run it back, and we saw definitively the difference in skill between the two fighters. Amanda was completely dominant. She got three knockdowns and secured some 10-8 rounds. She even said post-fight she wanted to show Julie, then the world, that she was just the better fighter. You know, I could have finished her. You know, I don't want to finish Juliana tonight. I did. I want to show her I'm better than her. Yes, Pena did win on the night at UFC 269, but she was always going to have to rematch Nunez, and she proved that with the right preparation, Juliana really didn't have anything for her. Number five, Steve Carl. Before the PFL, the Professional Fighters League, started giving away $1 million for winning their tournament, they operated for a few years under a different name, WSOF, the World Series of Fighting. And they had a lot of great talent walk through their doors. Uh, Steve Carl, he was good. He was a wrestler, and he had a bit of a hit-and-miss run through Bellator before moving on to the US regional circuit. Then in November 2012, the WSOF popped up. And you know, for a new promotion, the first show wasn't bad. They had Andre Olofsky, Rumble Johnson, Marlon Marais, even Tyrone Spong. But the opening round on the card was Steve Carl versus Ramico Blackman. Steve won, fought at WSOF 3 just a few months later, and in less than a year was fighting for the inaugural Welterweight Championship. That's uh, not bad at all. But here's the thing. 
They'd only just started the promotion, and it had been pretty thin. Steve won the belt in October, but earlier in March, WSOF announced they signed UFC title challenger John Fitch. One month after Steve won the belt, they also signed the terrifying Rusamar Paul Harris, and then a few months later, they picked up Jake Shields. All of them welterweights, all of them potential champions in this new organization. Poor old Steve, eh? His first defense was against Paul Harris, and the worst-case scenario happened. He got heel-hooked in just one minute. It's kind of hard to believe he would have done that much better against the other new signings. Not sure it's exactly what he signed up for. Number four, Nobutatsu Suzuki. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of you don't know who this man is, so allow me to educate you a little. Suzuki was a karate black belt and had the honor of being the inaugural one welterweight champion back in March 2014. But listen, if you don't know anything about MMA outside of the UFC around that time, 170 pounds was dominated by one man. Yeah, that's right, this guy. Ben Askren was crowned Bellator champion in 2010 after winning their Season 2 tournament, and by the end of 2013, he defended about five times, was 12-0, and had basically cleaned out their entire roster. By November, his contract had ended, and it just so happened that one championship were looking to start a welterweight division and crown a champion. Okay, so this brings us back to Suzuki. Ben had been signed to one in November 2013, but wasn't ready to fight just yet. So a few months later, when they had the inaugural title fight and Suzuki won the belt, yes, he was the new champion, but Askren was already on the roster, and it felt like Suzuki Suzuki was just keeping the belt warm for him. He even told him, Suzuki's gonna bring me my belt. He can put it in the middle of the cage and give it to me, or I can take it the hard way. Oh, sorry, Batman. <laughs> Look, destined to fail is a strong way of putting things, but no one had been able to stop Ben's grappling. Suzuki was pretty much a pure striker, and just four months after winning the belt, he was locked in the cage with Askren. He needed just one minute and 20 seconds to splatter him, and he defended the title for the next three years. Number three, Nico Montano. Fighting out of Arizona and beginning boxing at an early age, Nico Montano only needed two wins in the King of the Cage promotion before she was given a shot at their flyweight championship. And she won it after less than one year as a pro and just three and one. So guess what? Because she was a champion, she got an invite into season 26 of The Ultimate Fighter. The goal was the same with any tough season. Have a tournament until there's two fighters left who will compete this time for the vacant 125-pound women's title. She had a clean 3-0 sweep on the show, grinding out decisions, and she was supposed to fight Sajara Eubanks for the inaugural title, but she pulled out trying to make way and Roxanne Modafferi stepped in. Now Montano won and she was crowned the new champion but the thing is guys okay there was only ever one name on everyone's lips when the UFC announced the new division the bullet. The only person who'd managed to stop Valentina Shevchenko's UFC quest had been Amanda Nunes who was still the champion at 135 so when the rematch didn't go her way of course Valentina was going to move down to this new weight class which meant those 125ers should have gone running like Godzilla was closing in. But the story doesn't end here. Nico never actually made it to the fight. At UFC 228, she was transported to the hospital while attempting to make weight, and the fight was cancelled. Turns out the UFC was so convinced Val was just going to win anyway, they just stripped Nico of the belt. Talk about doomed to fail. Number two, Matt Serra. Okay, cool. So, yeah, Matt Serra. Obviously, right? I mean, no one gave him a chance at winning the title in the first place. We all know it's the greatest upset of all time. Luke Skywalker blowing up the Death Star, the Force is with you kind of shit. Okay, let's be honest. The MMA gods, of course, can be unpredictable. But if one thing was certain, it wasn't going to happen again. And look, if people thought Serra didn't have a hope in the rematch after GSP went and beat another top two welterweights, they thought he had a better chance of giving up pizza. We knew how good George was. And yeah, he proved it in the rematch where Matt was barely able to throw a punch. He took the belt from George in incredible historic fashion, but it felt more like a vacation than a title reign. And number one, Carla Esparza. 
When you look at this list, some of these champions seemed doomed to fail, but some of them had technically already beaten the champions that they were supposed to lose to in the first place. But with Carla Esparza and Zhang Weili, almost everyone had predetermined the result. Given that the UFC dedicated an entire season of The Ultimate Fighter to find supposedly the best women's strawweight on the planet, you'd have thought the winner would have stayed champion for quite some time. I mean, she technically just pushed past at least the top 15, right? But it turned out the best fighter was already in the UFC, Joanna Janjacek, and no sooner had Carla won the belt, a couple of months later, she was getting festooned with punches. She wasn't doomed to fail then, but after six more UFC fights, she would be at a deadlock of three and three. But 2019 saw a reinvention at the start of a five-fight win streak that led all the way back to a title fight. It was a rematch of her first title battle, and after a questionable game plan was employed by Nama Yunus, Carla managed to recapture the belt. But the fanbase almost unanimously agreed that the win had been a bit of a fluke, and it was also undeniable who Carla's first defense would be against, Chinese powerhouse Zhang Weili. If the fanbase didn't have confidence for Carla v. Rose, asking her to fight Weili was like asking Theon Greyjoy to grow a pair. On paper, well, the only area the Cookie Monster might have success was possibly with her wrestling, but in reality, she took Weili down and was absolutely punished on the ground for it. All respect to Carla, but to the fanbase, her losing the title kind of just felt inevitable.